Hello. Well, it definitely is such a pleasure to be here at All Nations, especially for uh, knowing that this is my dear friend, Pastor Michael's church. Back when we met in college and all up to now, I always called him Georgia Mike because that's where we knew he was from. So it's still, it's like a habit to say Georgia Mike, but you know, he's Pastor Mike. You know, I do want to say this. You guys are very blessed. He's a very unique individual, Pastor Mike. I say this in, in a good way. I, I don't know any pastor who is more organized and more energized than your pastor. Right? In the 17 years that I've known him, I don't think I've ever seen him tired or like being lazy even once. And I know, I'm sure, I know he does get tired, and I'm sure there are moments of laziness because I'm pretty sure he is a human being, but I've never seen it. So all this, and of course, I got to mention dear friends like Pastor DC and Dag as well. All this to say, all nations, you guys are so blessed, so blessed. And once again, thank you guys for having me. A pleasure to bring you the word of God. We'll be reading from Philippians chapter 4 today. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles, in your apps. I'm sure it's projected for you as well. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. <coughs> I'll read this for us. Let's give our attention and reverence, for this is the reading of God's word. And this is Paul speaking. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, an, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. Can we pray together just one more time? Let's ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you gather us, you call us to yourself as your people. What a blessing this is to be the church together. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which feeds us, which strengthens us, which causes us to rest and rejoice and glory in Christ all the more. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak through your servant, you would speak to your people, you would speak to all the hearts in this room that Christ would be magnified. We pray this in his name. Amen. In 2006, there was a New York Times bestseller that was just taking the world by storm. It was by an author named Rhonda Byrne, and this book in 2006 was called The Secret. The Secret. It was truly a global phenomenon. It was sold out at every single bookstore, Oprah, she dedicated not just one, but two episodes of her show to this book, The Secret, back in 2006. And even it's, perhaps the effects you have even lasted, of this book have lasted even to this day, where the UFC champion, Conor McGregor, credits his success in the UFC to the book, The Secret. And basically, this book by Rhonda Byrne is a book about positive visualization techniques. This is not a Christian book. Uh, it's about positive visualization, visualization techniques for the sake of achieving your goals, reaching your dreams, 
ultimately for the sake of being successful. And the reason why, I do think the reason why this book was such a success, the reason why this book was so successful was because it, it seemed to be offering the secret to how to be successful. It offered the secret of success. And now, you know, more than 10 years later, uh, by this point, people have realized what this book is saying is basically the same old stuff that the self-help gurus and the inspirational speakers and unfortunately, even some churches have been saying for so many years, it's the same old stuff. And I would say now, like, this book is more the butt of jokes than anything else. I remember there was a Simpsons episode that was uh, making fun of this book somewhat recently. And that, but at the time, everyone wanted to know, what is the secret? Right? What is the secret? Now, Apostle Paul here in our passage in Philippians chapter 4, he offers us a very different kind of secret. Not the secret to success, but the secret to contentment. He offers us truly a very different secret. Rhonda Byrne, her secret was trying to tell you how to be happy by getting what you want, by achieving and receiving what you want. Paul's secret is how to be content even when you don't get what you want. Very different And we know this is the case, and and Paul exemplifies this because we remember in the the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this this letter to the Philippian church from prison. This is not an ideal situation. He's literally in prison. That's why he says, you have revived your concern for me. The Philippian church was concerned for him because he's not in a good place. His circumstances aren't very good. They're not very uh, appealing or ideal. And yet throughout this letter to the Philippian church, he's constantly talking about rejoicing in the Lord while in prison. I actually suggest looking up the word rejoice and joy from the book of Philippians. You see it so many times. And of course, how does he do this? Unless he has a heart of contentment. I do think that contentment is perhaps a little bit of a lost art for us as Christians in our culture today. And so much of our misery, so much of our folly, so much of our just disappointments and discouragements have come from the fact that so often, I'll be the first to confess, so often we want Rhonda Byrne's secret a lot more than we want Apostle Paul's secret. We're a lot better, basically, we're a lot better at discontentment than contentment. Discontentment is very easy. And actually, because we're a lot better at discontentment than contentment, I'm going to frame our message today in three points about discontentment. We'll talk about, first, the ease of discontentment. Secondly, we'll talk about the end of discontentment, or hopefully at least the beginning of the end of discontentment. And then lastly, encouragements for the discontent, which oftentimes is all of us. So let's get right into it. The ease of discontentment. Of course, to begin, I want to just simply define discontentment as the heart that persistently says it's not enough. The heart that persistently says it's not enough. I don't have enough. I haven't received enough. You haven't given me enough. I am not enough. That's the heart of discontentment, the heart that persistently says that. And once again, we recognize contentment is not easy. Even Paul recognizes that. In verse 11 of our text, he actually says, I have learned the secret of contentment. I have learned. This isn't something that you're just born naturally good at. This is something we need to learn. It's not something that just comes naturally. 
on the flip side, no one really has to teach you how to be discontent. Sometimes we're even, I would say, we're even born discontent. And of course, Satan is working very hard to make us discontent. I mean, just think back to even the garden, like the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, are the first human beings. They lived, in, they lived on, in a paradise on earth. They walked and talked with the Lord. They had everything. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no suffering. And yet Satan somehow managed to get these two to feel discontentment about the one tree that they couldn't eat from when they had this garden paradise at their disposal. He, he somehow managed to get them to feel discontentment about the fact that they were humans who, were, who had a great, sweet communion with the Lord. They walked and talked with him, and yet somehow Satan managed to get them to feel discontentment about the fact that they were not like God. Somehow he managed to do that. To do that. Satan's delight is our discontentment. He loves to make us discontent. He loves to make us feel like I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I haven't received enough. And of course, the world and all the systems of the world is very good at making us feel discontent. Just think of the pursuit of happiness. More often than not, that just simply means the pursuit of wealth, right? Or think about uh, the American dream, keeping up with the Joneses. I, don't, I know we don't really use that phrase that much anymore, but you know, it's a phrase that simply means you know, comparing yourself to your neighbor. You see the, the car your neighbor drives. You see what they have. You see what kind of family they have, what kind of kids they have, and constantly comparing. We do all that digitally now, right, through social media. It's not keeping up with the Joneses. It's, it's keeping up with all your thousand acquaintances, right? Or planned obsolescence where uh, the products we owned are engineered, to feel obsolete sooner than they should so that we, need to, we feel discontent and we need to move on to the newer, better version. All of this is fertile breeding ground for discontentment. We have Satan. We have the world working against us. And of course, once again, as I mentioned, we have our own sinful natures working against us. We are, we are in, in, a lot of, in a lot of senses, we are born discontent. The moment you come out of the womb, you're like, I don't like this air. This air is not, not, not nice. It's kind of cold, and it, it doesn't feel good, and then you cry. I remember a friend once telling me when he was a young boy, he would all, at, at mealtimes, he would always look at his brother's plate, his older brother's plate. They were eating the exact same thing. They were eating the same portions even, but he would always look at his brother's plate and say, I want what he's having. I want that one. I want that one. I don't want this. I want that. Right? And so often, you know, that's a little child doing that, but so often we still do that in our hearts. And sometimes, once again, thanks to social media, quite literally, we are looking at our brother's plate or our acquaintance's plate after they take a picture of it and put, post it on Instagram, and we're saying, I want that. We're looking at all the things that they post, the relationships they have, the jobs that they have, the wealth that they have, and we're saying, I want that one. I want that one. We are constantly comparing so easy. It's so easy to be discontent, and we are doing it so naturally. And I, once again, I'll be the first to con confess, that's me. That's my heart. That's my heart. And the 10th commandment is, God gives us the 10th commandment. You shall not co covet that which belongs to your neighbor, because he understands that we are so prone to discontentment. He commands us, basically, be content. Don't covet your neighbor's belongings. Be content with what you have. Be content with who you are. Be content with what you've been given. And of course, 
that makes us have that leads to the second conclusion that if contentment is a command, then discontentment is a sin. It is. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. It's kind of a long psalm, so I could only quote, uh, I can only summarize it for you. But I do recommend, please read through that. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 73. Read it in your own time. But in that psalm, uh, the psalmist Asaph, he gives this warning to all his brothers and sisters. He says, brothers, sisters, my feet had almost slipped. I almost slipped. And he talks about his life, how he was always comparing. He always felt like people were getting so much better stuff than him, receiving such better uh, lives than him. He was always getting the shorter end of the stick. And oftentimes he was even thinking, people who are so much more wicked than I am are getting more than I have. He was constantly doing this to the point where his heart had grown bitter. He even said something as extreme as this. He said, all in vain have I kept my heart and my hands clean. Basically, he was saying, what's the point? What's the point? I'm trying so hard to be good, but I'm not getting blessed. And, And he recognizes this was such a sinful attitude. And he's warning, warning his brothers and sisters, don't be like me. And he, he, of course, he eventually repents and he says, I was like a beast towards God. I was like an animal towards God. I had done such injustice and sin towards God by having that attitude. And he warns his brothers and sisters, yes, it is a sin. A discontent heart is a sinful heart. Now, I do need to be clear. I do want to give one caveat. Maybe you're thinking throughout this whole point, you're thinking, I don't feel discontentment about anything. I never feel discontent. I do want to warn you. Perhaps you are complacent. Please don't confuse that. Or perhaps you're just a very stoic person. Perhaps you don't really feel anything. Please don't confuse that with contentment. Please don't think, well, I'm a, you know, yeah, I never feel discontent. Well, maybe it's because you don't care about anything. So I do want to warn you about that one. Complacency and being stoic is not the same thing as contentment. But that's just one, one caveat. But once again, So easy. It is so easy. Satan, the world, our own sinful hearts are working very hard to make us feel this persistent feeling of it's not enough. I don't have enough. I haven't been given enough. I haven't received enough. I am not enough. So that's the ease of discontentment. Well, how do we get to the end? I'm sure all of us are convinced discontentment is not good and it is easy. But how do we get to the end of discontentment, or at least the beginning of the end? How do we start to get rid of this persistent heart? Well, let's begin by talking about what won't work. Here's what won't work. Just doing more. Just doing more and more and more and getting more and more. That will not work to end discontentment. Just doing more, doing more work, doing more play, doing more travel, Or getting more, getting more accolades, getting more praise, getting more accomplishments, getting more relationships. Or, of course, the good old-fashioned, just getting more stuff. I like that one. Just getting more stuff. None of that will work to end discontentment. And it's a lie. And so often we believe the lie that if I just can get this much of this or just this kind of this, then finally I'll be content. If I can just get this kind of salary, 
If I can just get this kind of body, that's what I'm thinking about a lot of times. If I could get, if I, first you start with, if I could just get a spouse, if I just get married, then I'll be content. But then you start, once you're married, you're like, no, I want to change him. I want to change her. If I could get this kind of spouse, then I'll be content. If I just have kids, then I'll be content. And then it becomes, as they grow up, I need to have this kind of kid, and then I'll be content. And it's all a lie. It will never be enough. It will never be enough. The billionaire Nelson Rockefeller, he was once asked by a reporter, how much money does it take to be happy? What's like that baseline where, you know, obviously, once you make a certain amount, you're just like, you know, I'm good. And he famously replied, just a little bit more. It's always just a little bit more, just a little bit more. You know, there have been multiple studies done And of course, this is very well on our radar right now due to some high-profile celebrity suicides in the news lately. But multiple studies have been done that tell us that depression and suicide risks are actually higher in more affluent societies. Once again, evidence. Evidence that it's a lie to think, well, once I've just gotten this or done more of this, then I'll be content. That's not the answer. Just getting more, doing more will not end our discontentment. What about just uh, good advice? You might just try good advice. right? How about a, 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 a very well-known good advice? Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Don't focus on the things that you don't have and instead focus on the things you do have. Or how about the, fam- the one made famous by your mom when she says, don't you know people are starving in the rest of the world, be grateful for what you have and so finish all your food. Those are all great advice. None of that is bad advice. It's all great. It's all good stuff. But that alone is not going to end our discontentment. I don't know anyone who was told, don't you know people are starving in other parts of the world? Be thankful. And then you're like, I'll never feel discontent again. (laughs) I don't know anyone who has done that or who has felt that way. Why? Because good advice, is, it stimulates your brain and it's good. It's good to hear. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that our, our discontentment is a heart issue. It's something that's, that lies deep within our hearts. It's a heart condition. One of my favorite Puritan pastors by the name of Thomas Watson, he talks about discontentment. And he says, the discontent heart is like a leaky ship. It's like a ship with leaks. And then when the storm comes... Naturally, water gets into the ship because there's leaks and it sinks. Now, for many of us, we like to think that when the problem in our lives is our problems. We like to think, oh, it's because, you know, the reason why I was so, so discouraged and, and so burdened and so all these things is because the, the storm came. But now the storm's gone, so I'm good again. I'm good again. But the thing we have to recognize is so often the problem is not just the circumstances that come and go. But the problem is we have these leaks in our hearts. And yes, maybe uh, you know, this storm has passed. But when the next storm comes, when a new storm comes, we sink again because those leaks still remain. And Thomas Watson's point is it's the, ultimately we got to get, get rid of the leaks We don't need to get rid of the circumstances and the problems. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be stressors. There's always going to be storms. But the problem is we got these leaks. We got these leaks of discontentment in our hearts that just good advice can't fix, that just 
doing more and getting more can't fix. And so how do we get rid of the leaks? How do we get to contentment? I want to take us back to Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms once again. The the psalmist Asaph, he, he, he was bitter. He was constantly comparing. He was saying things like, I've kept my hands and my heart clean in vain. What's the point? God, what's the point? But when does that shift come? When does that turning point come? Go read it. I can't do it justice just by summarizing for you. But you know when that shift comes? That shift comes when he steps into the sanctuary. That's when the the, the psalm totally changes. The tone totally changes. The direction totally changes. When he steps into the sanctuary. It's not about going into some physical place. But stepping into the sanctuary means he he met with God. He met with the Lord. He, He came into the presence of God. And that began to melt away the bitterness and the comparison and all that discontentment. And, 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 he can, and he starts to change and repent. And it even crescendos where he says this beautiful and bold statement, Who am I, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How beautiful is that? He went from being a comparing, bitter, discontent person to someone who says, God is my portion. I don't need anything else on heaven or on earth because I have God. He is my strength. He is my portion. My strength can fail. I can fail. But I have God, and that's enough. And you know, Paul is no different. Paul is no different. Paul, we read from chapter 4 of Philippians, but you just go back one chapter in chapter 3, we see Paul saying pretty much the same thing as Asaph in Psalm 73, but kind of on the flip side. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, he, he like lists all these, not his failures, but he lists all his successes. He lists all his accolades. He lists his, all his resume, all his pedigree, all the things that he, he ought to be very proud of. And as the young people say, you might be thinking, why are you flexing, Paul? Why are you flexing, right? I just learned that, I learned that slang recently. <laughs> got to use it. Got to use it. And Paul is listing all these things. He's listing all these accolades and accomplishments and resume. And then he says, I consider all of it rubbish. I consider all of it garbage. All my resume, all my accomplishments, all my accolades And if you study that passage, you know that that word rubbish actually in the Greek can even mean dung. I consider all my resume and accomplishments and successes and awards and praises, I consider all of it doo-doo. It's all doo-doo. Why? Compared to what? He says, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's the same thing, right? The psalmist steps into the sanctuary and meets with God. And so all his failures and his disappointments and all the things that he feels makes him weak or less than, all of that fades away. And he says, God is my portion. On the flip side, Paul, when he, when he knows Christ Jesus, his Lord, when he comes to know him personally, relationally, he says, even all my successes and my accolades, those fade away. They're, they're rubbish. Because I know him. Know God and you will know disappointment. Sorry, you will know contentment. You will get rid of all the disappointment. (laughs) Know God and you will know contentment. 
and hey, you might be thinking, well, I feel very disappointed. <laughs> I feel very disappointed these days. Well, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I'm even close to there yet. Let me encourage you, begin to know God. You just begin to know God, and you will begin to know contentment. You know, a lot of people who know me know this well about me, but I am a huge geek. I love Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Someone else loves Star Wars, too. (laughs) Uh, Lately, the movies haven't been so good, so I'm I'm kind of fading, you know, but I really love Star Wars. I used to love Star Wars even more when I was in college. And I remember when I was a college student, in a moment of foolish exuberance, I declared in front of all these people, I said, you know, just to like a group of friends at church, I said, you know what? Star Wars is kind of like the gospel. (laughs) And I made that connection. And I remember my pastor at that time, he like zoomed in on me. He like honed in on me and he like used this moment as a teaching moment. And he said, no, Daniel, no, no. No, Star Wars is not like the gospel. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the exact same thing. I just, there's some things that remind me of the gospel in Star Wars. Uh, but he was like, no, he was so firm. And at the time, I didn't really appreciate it. But in retrospect, I'm so thankful he said that strong no. You know what his reason was? The reason he said such a strong no is he said no, because in Star Wars, the force is just this impersonal thing that that's just in the air it just surrounds you it's just everywhere and it kind of just helps you it helps you to like move stuff with your mind and it helps you to beat Darth Vader but it's just this impersonal force but God God is a person God is very personal and he was so strong he said that's why it's not the same and at the time I was just like yeah I know that I know I'm not saying the force is God Once again, in retrospect, I'm so thankful he said that to me because so often I do think the root of our discontentment and all our disappointments with God so often is because we do treat God like he's just the force. We may not say that out loud, but in our heart of hearts, God is just this impersonal force that helps me. He's just this force that when I'm scared, you know, he'll, he'll make me feel better. Or when there's something big coming up, he'll help it go well. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. But if that's all God is, then God is just the force. That's all God is. Then he's just the force. And this, this, this secret that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4 is not some visualization technique. It's not just some good advice. And it certainly is not some impersonal force. The secret that Paul is talking about is a person. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's a person. And that's why Paul, once again, very famously concludes in this passage in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And of course, in that passage, the most important word in there is that him. It's the him who strengthens me. That's why I can do all things. It's because of him, because I know him, because I belong to him. Because I have a relationship with him. Philippians 4.13 is probably one of the most well-loved verses of scripture. People like to quote it all the time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know several people who have it tattooed on their body. I don't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> I also have a buddy on his Facebook profile. In the, in the section where you indicate religion, he actually wrote, 
Philippians 4.13. He didn't write Christian. He wrote Philippians 4.13. That's my religion. But I fear, I fear that we love that verse so much, often because we misunderstand that verse. I fear that we quote that verse so much, but we're misquoting that verse. So many times we turn Philippians 4.13 into our own little Christian version of a, of a sports slogan. Impossible is nothing. Just do it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. <laughs> you laugh, but we do it. We do it too often. We use Philippians 4.13 as just basically the slogan to say, God will help me accomplish my goals. God will make me a winner. He'll help me to be a winner. And that's all we mean by that. But once again, if Philippians 4.13 is just a slogan for us, if it's just, you know, God, God will help me do what I want, what I, what I want to achieve, then really we're just saying God is like those shoes that make me run faster. God is like the Gatorade that quenches my thirst. God is like the force that helps me defeat my enemy. In other words, if Philippians 4.13 is just about reaching my goals, then we're really talking more about Rhonda Burns' secret than Paul's secret. And of course, when, and when that moment comes, and it will come for all of us at some point in your life, I'm sorry to say, when the moment comes when things do not go your way, when the crisis comes, when the disappointments come, when the discouragements come, and we have this kind of view of God, God as the force, God as the Gatorade, then all of a sudden our theology is shaken because of this faulty view, this faulty understanding of Philippians 4.13. But that's not what Paul is saying, is it? Paul, if we look at the context, we read the whole context, what is Paul saying? Paul is not talking about just get accomplishing things. When he says, I can do all things, that all things does not mean I can do everything. I could achieve it all. Just, you know, if you can dream it, you can achieve it or something like that. Paul is saying, I can do all things. And what are all things? He's saying to have plenty and to be in need, to be in high places and to be in low places, to win. Yes, but also to fail and to lose. And he's saying, I can do all of that through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a winner. Yes. There's nothing wrong with winning guys. If you want to win, that's great. But you, you say, I can win through Christ who strengthens me. But then you can also say, I can lose. I can fail through Christ who strengthens me. And at the end of the day, it's Christ who is still strengthening me. And that's why I can have contentment. Because I know him. Because I belong to him. Because I've stepped into the sanctuary. Once again, if God is just the force, just the Gatorade, just my slogan, just my, my secret to my success, I, I guarantee you, you will experience a lot of discontentment in the Christian life. You will. If that's all God is, then God will never be enough because your, your goals and dreams and achievements will be higher than him. But if God is a person... If your secret is a person, if your secret is your savior, if he's a person who wants a relationship with you, if he's a person who would, who would even say things like, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If God is a person, if your secret is this person who would come down to this earth and go up to a cross to initiate this relationship with you, then he will be enough then you can finally say, I do have enough. 
I am enough. And more importantly, God is enough. So if any of you feel like a loser today, raise your hand if you feel like a loser. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's sad. But if, but if any of you feel like you've been losing lately, in whatever way, you've been losing money, you've been losing relationships, you've been losing respect, let me tell you, Philippians 4.13 Philippians 4, is exactly for you. I can lose. I can even lose through him who strengthens me. And don't get me wrong. It's, it's okay if you're in a bad time of your life, if you're suffering, if you're losing. It's okay to want things to get better. That's fine. That's natural. You don't need to become like masochists because of Philippians 4.13. And you should see that there's plenty of godly mourning in the Bible. Even plenty of godly complaint in the Bible. But here's the big difference. The, the heart that is exercise, that is, that is living out this relationship with God and exercising Christian contentment, when even in the moments of complaint and, and things being disappointing and discouraging, you bring your complaint to God. You bring it to Him. But the discontent, bitter heart goes to God and complains about Him. That's the difference between godly complaint and ungodly complaint. Godly mourning and ungodly mourning. One, you bring it to God because he's this person who loves me and cares for me and knows me and walks with me. So I bring even my complaints to him. But if he's just the force, then I say, what's wrong with the force? What's wrong with this Gatorade? What's wrong with this, these shoes? It's not working. And I complain about him instead. That is the end of discontentment. Know God, and you will know contentment. And you'll begin, at least begin to see the end of discontentment. And you can actually say, God is enough. God is my portion. This God who didn't have to love me. This God who didn't have to pursue me. This God who certainly didn't have to die for me. Wants a relationship with me. He doesn't just want me to be some distant worshiper as important as it is to be a worshiper. But he wants a son. He wants a daughter. He wants that. And when I know someone like, a God like that, he is truly enough. Lastly, I'll close with some encouragements for the discontent, which really means encouragements for all of us because we all experience discontent hearts at different times of our lives, perhaps even today. Four encouragements very quickly for you for the discontent. First, very, perhaps this is the most important one. The first encouragement for you is that Jesus died for your discontentment. Yes, your discontentment, your discontent heart, the persistent heart that says, I don't have enough, I'm not enough, I haven't been given enough, that is a sin. But please, please recognize Jesus died on that, on that cross for that sin as well as all our other sins. So please don't walk out of here saying, well, you know, pastor said I got to be content. So if I want to be good with God, I got to be more content. Please don't walk out of here saying that. Right? You're good with God because of what Christ has done. And if I'm good with God because of what Christ has done, then I can be content. Right? That's the important order to get right. I don't become more content and then God loves me more. It's because God has loved me and saved me and cleansed me and forgiven me and grows me. That's why I could be content. Very important order. Jesus died for your discontentment. Second encouragement for you. Pray your discontentment. You can pray 
your discontentment. I alluded to that about godly complaint. But the number one way you exercise your personal relationship with God is prayer. Right? Why does God give us prayer? God's not like, oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. Thank you so much for telling me, guys. I didn't know these things. That's not why God gives you prayer. Right? God gives you prayer because that's what people in a relationship do. They talk to each other. For those of you who are married, if you want, if you want your relationship with your spouse to feel very distant, just stop talking to your spouse. It'll work. Just stop talking to him. Stop talking to her. You won't feel very personal or relational at all. Or, or with, your, with good friends. We've all experienced this. You haven't talked to a good friend in a long time, right? Well, if they're a good friend, they still think of you as a friend. And that's the, that's the security of being a good friend, right? Or having a good friend. But, you, but the longer you don't talk to that good friend who still loves you and cares about you, the more you don't feel it. You don't feel that relationship. Pray your discontentment. Exercise that personal relationship with God. Thomas Watson, once again, the Puritan pastor. Here's what he says. Prayer gives vent. Hey, we all like to vent, right? Prayer gives vent. Vent to God. When the heart is filled with sorrow and disquiet, prayer lets out the bad blood. Prayer is the unbosoming of the soul, the unloading of all our cares in God's breast. And this ushers in sweet contentment. Pray your discontentment. Please pray your discontentment. So first, Jesus died for your discontentment. Pray your discontentment. Third, contentment is attractive. That's my third encouragement for you. Contentment is attractive. Just think about the unbelieving world, the world that does not know Jesus, your family members, your friends who don't know Jesus. Can you imagine them seeing at least a glimmer of this godly Christian contentment in you where you're humble in success and resilient in failure? Can you imagine your, your friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus and they see that in you? Can you imagine them saying, why would I want that? Can you imagine that? No way. They'll be like, I want what he's having. I want to know what his secret is. Right? It's very attractive. It is. It's attractive to the unbelieving world. This is, it's attractive for your witness as you grow in contentment. And the way we treat people changes as your heart becomes more content. James, in chapter 4 of, of, of the book of James, he says that fights, quarrels happen. We have all, these, all this friction in our relationships because we simply don't, we, we don't get what we want. Because you want, but you don't have. What is that but discontentment? But when you're content in your heart, all of a sudden, people stop being your competition. When you have contentment in your heart because you know your secret, which is your Savior, Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, they're not, they're not competition. All of a sudden, it's more like what, what Paul says in Romans. You can actually weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And you start to treat people better even. And I, I got to say this. Obviously, I got to say it. For my brothers and sisters who are single, yes, please do not think. Once again, don't believe that lie. If I just get married, then, then I'll finally be content. That's a lie. That is, the married people will tell you that's a lie. <laughs> Please don't think you're less than because you're single. That is a lie, a lie of Satan. I hate that lie. But ain't nothing wrong with trying to get some godly game, right? Ain't nothing wrong with that. You know, you know how you get some game? Learn some contentment. 
the best, very attractive. Don't let that be your primary motivation to pursue this contentment, but just putting that out there, throwing that out there for you. Contentment is attractive. Jesus died for your discontentment. You can pray. Please pray your discontentment. Contentment is attractive. And here's my last encouragement for you, and we'll be done. There is such thing as godly discontentment. There is. If you are, if you are one that feels like, you know, there's, there's just something not right with this world. There's something not right with this life. There, is, you know, there, there isn't this full sense of what we call shalom in this world. And there's this, this, you feel this feeling like something's wrong with this world. Perhaps it's actually a godly discontentment. C.S. Lewis, he famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Christians will always have this sense of longing. It's true. We will always have this deep groaning in our hearts. We're longing for heaven. We're longing to be with our Savior, with, with this Lord who wants a personal relationship with us. We long to be with him, and we long to see him face to face. That's a godly discontent. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we groan for heaven. But recognize, this sort of godly discontentment doesn't make us miserable the way ungodly discontentment does. It makes us run to our Savior all the more. It makes us cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, all the more. It doesn't make us miserable. Jesus died for your discontentment. Please pray your discontentment. Contentment is attractive to the unbelieving world and maybe even to, you know, the opposite sex. And lastly, perhaps it's a godly discontentment also in your heart as you long to see Christ face to face because you cherish that relationship you have with him. As we close, just got to say all nations. I'm sure this is true about all your pastors, and it's, it's even true about me. I don't really know you, but it's still true. I, I, I would love for you to be successful in life. I'd love for you all to be winners. Who doesn't want that? It's, that's great. If you're all doing well in life, in career, in relationship, whatever, that's great. Awesome. Praise God. Please praise God in those moments. Stay humble. But there is something way more important than that. And we see that here. We see that throughout the scriptures. And that is truly being content in our Lord Jesus Christ. Happiness will come and go based on all sorts of our circumstances that come our way. But there is such great gain when we are able to say, my flesh may fail, my body might fail, and eventually will fail. My heart may fail, my endeavors might fail, my dreams may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What great gain there is to grow with, to, to let that be the anthem of your heart, to let that be what drives you, whether you succeed or fail. Because we have this secret it's not a big secret anymore. The Bible talks all about it. But it is Paul's secret. And our secret is not some technique or some force. Our secret is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who would die on a cross to know you, to know me, so that we might belong to him. And when you know a Lord like that, truly, he will be your portion. He will be enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful once again. As we do consider the ease of discontentment, there are so many ways 
our hearts are pulled in all sorts of directions that make us compare, that make us bitter, that make us discouraged. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us the secret of all secrets in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know him. We don't want to just know about him. We don't want to just talk about him. We want to know him. We want to walk with him. We want to commune with him. And God, we recognize this is not something that we muster up. We thank you, Lord, that you have stooped down to us. You have reached us. We didn't have to initiate this. We don't have to build this up. You have come down. I thank you for Christ and his love, his his pursuit, his initiation, his sacrifice. Lord, help us just to simply receive this, to take hold of it, to rest in it, to grasp it, that which you've already given us. And would that be where all the change, that would that be what makes all the difference? Lord, we thank you that by your grace, by your mercy, you love us, you care about us, you care about the details of our lives, you care about our wins, you care about our fails know us would that be what drives us would that be what spurs us on would that be truly what causes us to say i can do all things because you are strengthening me in the good and the bad i thank you lord for the reality of the gospel and your word which feeds us with that reality we praise you we love you in jesus name amen